We are in Mark chapter 15. Just last week, uh, we looked at the trial of Jesus. Stephen led us through that and, and saw how God orchestrated events so that Jesus would be the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to get online and hear it. So we're going to pick up right after the trial of Jesus. The last thing that we saw in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus being flogged by the Roman soldiers. We'll talk a bit about that today. And after the flogging is where we start in verse 16. So, the soldiers led him into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called together the whole cohort. They put a purple cloak on him, and after braiding a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Then they knelt down and paid homage to him. When they had finished mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him, and then they led him away to crucify him. The soldiers forced a passerby to carry his cross, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, throwing dice for them to decide what each would take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And they crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by defamed him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, even the chief priests, together with the experts in the law, were mocking him among themselves. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also spoke abusively to him. Now, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Around three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come down, come and take him down. But Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, when the centurion who stood in front of him saw how he died, he said, truly this man was God's son. 
There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the younger, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they had followed him and given him support. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were there too. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, as we are silent for a moment, bring the scripture to bear on us. Speak to us about your word. Lord, may we join with the Apostle Paul as we understand your work on the cross and say, we resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Bring us in our minds and hearts to the foot of the cross that we might see and grasp and understand deeper and more than we have before today. Have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, I need to open with a uh, warning. It is my intention today to explain the crucifixion uh, from a uh, theological standpoint, from a social standpoint, but also from a physical standpoint. And the crucifixion is horrific. It's horrific. And so, um, you know, if you have your kids in the room or all of you, I would just encourage you, uh, if you choose to stay and listen, uh, to be ready to process this with somebody, okay? Um, let the details in, but be ready to process it with somebody afterward. When it comes to the literal act of crucifixion, Mark is very brief. He uses, in fact, just three words in Greek, and it translates to three words in English. They crucified him. But so much is contained in those words, so much. In fact, scholars have uh, noticed for generations that neither the gospel writers nor the, the, um, the rest of the apostles who wrote the rest of the New Testament give us much detail about the actual physical crucifixion. They don't explain it. They don't go into detail about it. And there's been a lot of theorizing about why that might be. But it occurred to me uh, this week, here, here's my theory, um, that, uh, surprise, surprise, I think the scholars may be overthinking it. <laughs> um, the first recipients of the Gospel of Mark were persecuted Roman Christians. They're living in the Roman Empire. Crucifixion is something they see. <laughs> 
They have to witness it. And once you hear what they see, friends, when they close their eyes at night, they're trying not to see it, you know? We have words like this in English. You know, this word crucifixion, I I suspect Mark and the rest of the gospel writers and Paul, they don't explain the physical details of crucifixion because it's traumatic. We have words like that. You know, I think the the word that comes to mind for me, the word that what the word in and of itself is enough, it's traumatic. If someone was to give any more explanation is the word rape. We don't want to hear any more after you hear that word, right? Like, oh, okay. Oh, it the, the chills go through our bones. But we are not them. We do not see it when we close our eyes at night. Look, it's, it is right and good that the cross is the central, primary symbol of Christianity. That is right and good. It is good that it adorns inside and out houses of worship. It is right and good that many people in reverence for what Jesus did wear crosses as jewelry. And and many of you probably have crosses tattooed somewhere on your body because tattoos are really popular right now. Um, that That's okay as, as an act of adoration. And I pray that by the end of my remarks, the cross is an even greater object of your adoration. And those symbols, when you see them, mean any, mean even more to us. But because of the proliferation of talking about the cross and talking about the crucifixion, we can sing about it with a cup of coffee in our hands. Think about other things. We can talk about crucifixion, and it doesn't turn our stomachs or make us weep. Our familiarity has surely bred some contempt. We are so desensitized. Yes, let the cross be an object of adoration. Let it be something that is a prominent symbol in your life. Bring it back in into your mind again and again. But if it doesn't disturb and sicken you a little bit, you haven't begun to grasp what Jesus has done for you. And the worship that you are able to offer him are hamstrung. They're limited. They're capped. We have whitewashed the way we speak of crucifixion. And because of that, it, it, it honestly, it just doesn't seem that bad to us. It doesn't strike a nerve. And because of that, when troubles come, when you make a big mistake in your life, when you relapse, when you hurt someone, when somebody hurts you, when a pandemic disappoints us and causes so many uh to suffer and die when you get blindsided as you're driving along the cross, if you haven't been haunted by it, it it won't be able to meet you at that painful place. It must haunt you 
for you to be able to hallow him. It must disturb you before it can deepen you. And so that's my goal today. We're going to look at the cross from three perspectives. The physical passion of Jesus. The word passion in this context means his suffering, the pouring out of himself. The physical passion of Jesus. The social and emotional passion of Jesus. And finally, the spiritual or theological passion of Jesus. We could spend years and years talking about this. So one sermon is one little piece. But we need to start with the physical, because that's what we would notice first. We first learn about the flogging of Jesus. Of course, that is, was in the passage last week. Many people died during the flogging. The Romans were very good at bringing somebody to the very edge of their life, but when you're whipping somebody and tearing their skin apart, you don't care that much. The whip was specially designed to rip the skin open with each lash. By the time they're done with the flogging, those present would have been able to see muscle tissue and bone. Skin would have been hanging off of Jesus like string. His bleeding would be immense, and immediately they march him to a public place. They call it where the governor resides. It's a public gathering place for Romans. And they make this macabre sport of him. We'll talk about where they're pretending to crown him king in a minute. But they put this crown of thorns on him, whether the thorns are big or small, they would have punctured his scalp. Those of you who have ever even slightly cut your head, our heads bleed a lot. He would have had blood soaking into his eyes and mouth. He would have been covered. And as they do that, they're striking him in the head and face with a staff. And now, in the Roman practice, the victim or the, the convict must carry the crossbeam, it's called the patabulum, to the site of execution. Jesus can't make it but a few steps before he collapses. It's too heavy. And so they get this guy, Simon, to carry it. And we don't really know anything about Simon, but there's an interesting thing that Mark includes here. This isn't part of the physical details, but he says, Simon, the, the father of Alexander and Rufus. There, there's only one reason that Mark would have included their names. Alexander and Rufus are surely part of the Roman church that Mark is sending this letter to. I mean, he's connecting it to them. And in fact, when Paul writes the letter to the Romans, at the end, he greets all these people. He greets Rufus, who's there. So here we have this man who's come to be part of the Passover uh, in Jerusalem. And I wonder if this is the beginning of faith for their family. 
He's pulled into this terrible moment. And perhaps this is where he and his sons and his family begin to follow Jesus. So they get to the site of crucifixion. Uh, I came across a description of what was happening written by a, a pastor who's also a medical doctor, um, Dr. Truman Davis. And I'm going to read this to you. Again, this is going to be the hardest part of this sermon. Simon is ordered to place the, the patibulum, that is the crossbeam, on the ground. And Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The crossbeam is then lifted in place at the top of the stipes, the vertical beam. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. Nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is searing agony as the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain. Cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. And then another agony begins. A deep, crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level, the compressed heart is struggling to pump 
heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The body of Jesus is now in extremis, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. Mark barely describes that, of course. It just happens. And perhaps we know why now. The overwhelming emphasis in Mark's gospel is not what's happening to Jesus physically, but what's happening to him socially. Mark goes to great detail to describe the mockery that is coming at Jesus. It is coming from every side. In fact, Four groups of people are mocking Jesus. First, we have the Romans. They start in the praetorium, the governor's palace, and they keep it going all the way. They're mocking Jesus, and they're dressing him up as a king. And the irony of what's happening with what they're saying and even kneeling before him and what they hang is that they are holding a coronation. They are literally doing all of the stuff you would do to make someone a king. Aside from the fact that he's not going to a throne, he's going to a cross. They're saying the right things and, and take out the, the striking him in the face. Of course, they're doing the right things. A Greek speaker reading the Gospel of Mark would not miss the fact that when Jesus is hung on the cross, the exact same phrasing is used for somebody being on his right and his left hand that earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' disciples, James and John, asked for. It's the same sentence structure. When you're in your glory, can we be at your right and left hand? Well, now Jesus has people at his right and left hand, but where, where are James and John? So the Romans mock him. In their mockery of him, they are also mocking the Jewish people. And I think this is part of why the Jews turn on him even more in the moment of crucifixion. They don't have any pity because they've been humiliated. The Romans have taken this man beaten within an inch of his life, this bleeding, broken man. They've dressed him up and they've said, here's your king, Jews. It's an insult to them. They feel insulted and they can't attack the Romans, so they attack him. And so the passers-by, the second group, mock him for his claims regarding the temple. Oh, you said you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, but you can't even get yourself off the cross. They're mocking him for that. The irony of their words, again, is that the temple is being destroyed. Jesus has subtly said that he is the true and better temple, and it's being destroyed. He, he may hear their words. I wonder if in the mockery, Jesus is encouraged about his mission. He's being reminded that it will be rebuilt on the third day. The third group of mockers is the Jewish leaders. 
He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ come down from the cross. There's so much irony. Every group of insulters is speaking things aloud that perhaps would come back to haunt them. Do you hear what they're saying? They're recognizing that Jesus saved others. They're admitting that they believe the stories or maybe they saw with their own eyes that Jesus healed people or delivered them from demons. They're recognizing it. He saved others, they say, with their own mouth. They call him the Christ, the anointed one. They think they're doing it as an insult. Again, if he can hear their words, perhaps his resolve is being fueled by the Father. Stay, son, stay. This is the act of saving. But even the criminals being crucified with him, probably members of Barabbas' gang who tried to take over Jerusalem, are turning against him. Mark doesn't tell any story about one of the criminals confessing Christ. They are just mocking him in this account. We have, throughout the Gospel of Mark, noticed that Mark does things in sets of four, and it's been kind of interesting. Well, here there is a big meaning a tragic part of Christian history is that we look at the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus and Christians have used that to turn against people groups, particularly the Jewish people, as if they're the ones who crucified Jesus. Forgetting, of course, that the one on the cross said, pick up your cross and follow me. And Mark lists four groups and throughout scripture, the number four, one of its primary meanings is global. North, south, east, west, the four corners of the earth, up, down, left, and right. Everywhere you look, somebody is mocking. Every type of person, rich and poor, even people about to die are, are mocking Jesus. Everyone takes their pound of flesh. There's a more modern hymn that we sing once in a while, How Deep the Father's love, and there's a line in that song that is hauntingly accurate. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. That's what Mark's inviting us to do. Again, consider all of this, all of this mockery, in light of what I just described about the physical torment of Jesus, can you um, imagine, friends, even your worst enemy, like the person who's treated you the worst in your life, if you saw them in the state that Jesus was in, I'm guessing that you would not be able to bring yourself to continue heaping more on them. Jesus' body is is having spasms. It's bleeding down the cross. There are body fluids that he cannot control. He is naked and ashamed. He's going in and out of consciousness. He's gasping for air, and they are willing still to mock him. Come on in, kids. You can find your parents. They're willing to mock him. 
Aaron and I were discussing this this week, and Aaron's only thought was, this, it must be demonic. It must, like, how else could people be moved to do that? And perhaps it was. I think Satan and his demons thought that they had won the day. And so they're taking advantage of it. But I also think about what the Jewish people had just experienced. They've been humiliated again by the Romans. The third category that we need to look at for the passion is the theological, spiritual passion of Jesus. What is happening as he hangs on the cross? What is God doing? And as he hangs on the cross, there are four big things that God does. I'm not making this up. Four big things. Number one, darkness covers the land. Darkness is a sign of judgment, and for Jewish people, it should remind them of the ninth plague in Egypt. You know the plagues to free the people from Egypt? Well, the tenth plague is the Passover. The ninth plague, darkness covers the land, and I've always read that in Exodus and thought, so? <laughs> it's dark. Like, it doesn't seem that bad. And yet... Here it is again, this sign of the great judgment, this reminder that Christ is our Passover lamb. He's the firstborn son who would die at the hands of the angel of death. And so the second thing, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a lot of theories about what's happening here, and I'm not going to go into it because none of them are adequate. What Jesus is experiencing in terms of the sin of the world upon him is uh, the single worst thing any person has experienced in a moment. That's what he's experiencing. And when that happens, several commentators, they look at what the people say when they say, hey, he's calling Elijah. And they say, this is probably mockery too. Because after all, the Messiah was supposed to be preceded by Elijah. And so they're kind of like bringing that up again. Like, prove it again. You're like begging for Elijah to come. And they're hoping for that to happen. And, and given the rest of this scene, I think that probably makes sense. The third thing that happens is the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom torn in two. This is likely the curtain that separates out the holy place from the other parts of the temple. It is a profound symbol. By Jesus' death, God is giving us access to his presence. He's concluding the sacrificial system. And at this, Roman soldier who's standing there, his eyes open and he sees God for who he is. Now, something you may miss in the Gospel of Mark is in chapter 1, Jesus gets baptized, which, which represents death and coming back to life. He gets baptized, and at that moment, the way Mark describes it is the heavens are torn in two, and God says, this is my son. The same language at the end. The curtain is torn in two, and now a Roman soldier says, 
This is God's son. Amazing. That's tying together. And so, Mark's encouragement to his first readers, we need to hear it again. The, The Roman Christians who received the gospel of Mark are being persecuted for their faith. They're probably seeing some of their brothers and sisters in Christ be crucified. They're being sent to the Colosseum. And in describing this, Mark says, Jesus is with you every step of the way. He's with you in it. He has experienced the worst of it. The worst the Romans could come up with was inflicted on him. And and yet, so the Romans do all that to him. And yet when he dies, it is a Roman officer who believes more than anyone else in the gospel of Mark has believed. No one else is able to bring themselves to say, this is God's son. This is the climactic moment of the gospel. And so the Roman Christians in Rome receiving this, they are reminded that the way that you suffer is your greatest witness. No no power that you could acquire, no cool buildings that you could buy, no any of that. None of that is your greatest witness. Church, the way that you suffer If you understand the suffering of Jesus and it gives you hope to press through it with gratitude and joy, that, um, above anything else, will present the goodness of God and the beauty of Christ and the hope of heaven to your neighbors. When you suffer, do you complain? Do you mock God? Have you forgotten the cross? I'm a complainer. Ooh, ask Aaron. Our greatest potential of witness for Christ is suffering with joy and hope. Before we conclude, consider again what Mark showed us throughout the gospel. Jesus predicts this three different times. He walked into this with his eyes wide open. He knew that the Romans were going to do this to him. He knew he would be mocked and beaten and spat upon. He knew he would be rejected by his own people. He said it three different times. He's not, this isn't a surprise to him. He's choosing to be here. If you think about this from the posture of the the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, This is the father giving his son over to this. Anyone who's a parent in the room, you know that if if there was a moment where your child was in grave danger, something would take you over. You would do whatever you could to trade places with your child. And yet the father must give the son over. They've agreed this is the only way. And the son is choosing to give himself over knowing the agony that was in store for him. Why? Why? Philosopher James K. Smith says it so simply. This is God's answer to the problem of evil. This is it. All of it finds its meaning right here at the cross. Or as the... (laughs) The theologian, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says it, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. 
Or as Jesus said it the night before this happened, this is my body given for you. We are proclaiming that when we come to the table. And so, church, I would invite you to enter in to this moment of recognition of what he's done for us. We have a call and response prayer that we pray. God, let us see this fresh and new. Church, is the Father with us? Yes. Is Christ among us? Yes. Is the Spirit here? Yes. This is our God. And we are his people. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Brothers and sisters, on the same night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus is Lord. And this, which tells the story of the cross, is the feast of victory. And Christ is alive forever. We're one body. Draw near with faith. So, church, if you have put your trust in Jesus and you recognize as you look at the cross that what more could be done? What of your good deeds could you add to what he has given and paid? What, like, what goodness of yours reduced his pain on the cross? None. None. If you are empty-handed and ready, church, come and receive the free gift of his life given for you. Come and receive the bread with your open hands. He, he gives himself to you, and then you can either dip it in the cup, which is wine, or let me know, and I've got grape juice here available for you. And we will worship as we come. We will sing about the rock that is cleft for us, torn open. Let's worship as we come.